The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, A rich man had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, What is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship, because you can no longer be my steward. The steward said to himself, What shall I do? Now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they may welcome me into their homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, One hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another, the steward said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred cores of wheat. The steward said to him, Here is your promissory note. Write one for eighty. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones, and the person who is dishonest in very small matters is also dishonest in great ones. If therefore you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? If you are not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? No servant can serve two masters, who either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The Gospel of the Lord. Part three today. We've made it. I'm really excited. But before we get there, I should probably address this gospel because it's a little, 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 little something. So, we've got this steward. Essentially, think of a steward like a financial advisor. And this financial advisor is essentially ripping off his customer. Well, the customer finds out, it's like, I'm going to fire you. So, it's like, all right, what do I need to do to, like, make this better? So, it goes to, like, the customers, like, people that owe them stuff, and it's like, I'm going to, like, work a deal. When Jesus is talking about this parable today, he not only uses the steward as an example of positive things, which is odd, but also a warning of what we should not be doing. So let's look at the example, like the positive of this. The example of the positive of the steward is that the steward shows how to expend every effort in making use of the means he has to prepare for the future. He acknowledges that he's a weak weak person that does not want to beg because he's got too much pride, all right? And so he's like, what do I need to do to make sure that when this ends, and I know that I have a future ahead of me, like, I'll be taken care of. He goes to these extreme means. For us, the example is, what lengths am I willing to go to to prepare for the future, to be ready for a future that is inevitably going to happen? Now, the warning is, don't be the steward. Don't rip people off. Because the warning is, again, directed back to the Pharisees, but really focuses on the fact that the Pharisees, the steward, like people, you know, if they seek 
when they don't seek eternal riches, but they seek the esteem and the effects of the temporal reality. So they're seeking the, the things of now. That's actually problematic. So, example, we have to do whatever we can to prepare for the future within limits. The warning is don't seek these, these things out of uh, self-pride. So, there's the gospel for you. Part three, what right looks like. Oh, I'm so excited. So let's review. Part one, and I know, I know you're still getting used to like talking during the homilies and at mass, so I'm going to encourage you to respond to the questions I'm about to pose, okay? Okay, good job. So first week, we talked about, um, you know, what it, like the foundation. So we use three kind of key words there. First word starts with an A, rhymes with authority, which is? Nice, good job. Second word was starts with a T and rhymes with Ruth, which is? Nice. And then the last word starts with an L and rhymes with ah, which is? Excellent. Authority, truth, and law. If we can establish that really there is authority, and we're going to say our authority is God, and that there is truth and it's objective, which means like there's no argument about it, and that the law is existent, natural law, divine law, even the civil law, then we need to do right things. Last week, we talked about all the difficulties of that. So we talked about sin, you know, just by our fallen human nature. There's, there's challenging to, to follow after an authority because then the next part is relativism. Like, we make our own laws and our own rules. And then the last is just rejection. I just don't want to be a part of this. So authority, truth, and law is the foundation that we're called to accept. The challenges are the sin of our own humanity the relativism that we face, and then just rejection in, as a whole. But today we get to talk about like the joy. We get to talk about the hope. We get to talk about like what happens if we do it. What happens if we do what right looks like. And so here are our three words. Hope, say hope. Joy, say joy. Freedom, say freedom. Nice. You're getting there. So hope, joy, and freedom. Now, this is all based off of the premise that we accept authority, truth, and law. Acknowledging, again, sin, relativism, rejection. Okay. Hope, joy, freedom. Have you ever tried to Google search God's promises? No one? Just me? Okay. So, <laughs> I was Google searching all week, like, God promises, like, give me some hints, give me some help, right? And there's, like, website after website 33 of God's promises, 15 of God's promises, 84 of God's promises. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> There's not like a clear definitive like, here's a promise, right? But we have to think about promises in maybe a different way. And so we're going to think of promise in the term of covenant today. And so a covenant's not just a contract. It's not just something that is made between, like, all right, it's, it's a situation. But a covenant is an uh, eternal promise, right? So in marriage vows, you make a covenant. This is a, a divine promise. God made covenants with us. He made, essentially, these promises with us. There were six key covenants. We're just going to go through them real fast. The first one was Adam and Eve. Second was Noah. Third was Abraham. Fourth was Moses. Fifth was David. The last one was Jesus. Now, if we look at these covenants and we look at like what they represent, it's actually quite beautiful. So Adam and Eve, the first covenant essentially was for a couple. 
right? It's for like two people. Like, this is where we're going to start. This is our basis. And then he moves on to Noah. And he incorporates a family. And then he goes to Abraham. And Abraham's known as a tribe. The thing I love about Abraham is that when God is speaking to him, he says, Abraham, go look at the stars in the sky and count them. And as many as you can count, that is how many generations and how many people like I will care for with you. Here's the fun fact. Do you know when he told him to go look at the stars in the sky? No? No one? Okay. He told him to go look at the stars in the sky when it was sunny outside. So he can't even see them. And yet he knows that they're there because the stars don't like magically appear and not appear. Like they're always existent. And so the fact is like, I'm calling you to go look at something that you can't even see and to trust me even though you can't tell it's there because I promise this to you. Okay. So Abraham's the tribe. Moses is the nation. It's getting a little bit bigger. David's the kingdom. And then Jesus is like the church. Why is this important for us? Because it shows that God's covenant, his promises, began small but kept getting bigger. That he actually wants all of us. That it's for everyone. So that's really important. Here's the part then, as I looked up more about like promises and covenants, this is what I got in one of the commentaries. It said, for God's every word of grace is a promise. Man's willingness to obey his commandments brings him many assurances of grace. Let's think about that first part. God's every word is a promise, meaning everything he says in scripture is a promise because all of scripture is God's word, right? It's inspired by human authors, but it's inerrant. It's, it's him speaking, and so Everything he says is a promise in a sense. So someone did look up like how many times the word promise shows up in the Bible. It's like 7,428 times. It's a very specific number, I understand, because I memorized it. Anyway, everything God speaks to us about in Scripture is in a sense a promise to us. That's pretty cool. Now, I did decide to go on and pick, like, one of the sections of promises, and I found 15 of them. I'm not going to read you all 15. They all related to Scripture. I want to highlight two. First one. First promise. God loves me deeply, no matter what. So this comes from Romans. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from his love. God's love loves me so deeply no matter what. Does that mean like, all right, I'm a sinner, like God's not going to love me? No, that's not accurate. He's going to love me, but he's going to push me to be better. He's going to push me to correct myself. God loves me deeply no matter what. That's back to the covenants. The promises. I want everyone. Okay, second one. This one's great. God has a plan for my life. Thank you. <laughs> like how many times I'm just like, what is the plan, dude? I do not know what's happening. So I have a plan. Jeremiah, right, says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Even though we could be going through, you know, a hurricane, we could be going through an awful situation in life, God has a plan for that. And that's hard to sometimes accept. So I'm going to give you one more promise, all right? Bonus promise. God 
can be trusted. He can be trusted. Now, if I don't accept authority and I don't accept truth and I don't accept law, none of this matters. But if I do, then I can trust him. And in Hebrews it says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. God can be trusted to keep his promise. Like this, this has to be part of that, that hope and foundation. Like if he's going to love me no matter what, and he has a plan for me, then yeah, he's going to trust me. Do I know where that goes all the time? Absolutely not. Did, did eight-year-old Jay know he'd be a priest one day? Heck no. Eight-year-old Jay didn't believe in God. And yet, he had a plan. And he loves me. Regardless of what I accept or denied or where I went, he loves me. And I had to learn to trust him. So that's, that's the premise, right? That's God's promise of this hope, this joy, this freedom. Like, if we, if we abide by it, like, he's going to He's going to do what he says he's going to do. But it's also important for us to begin to understand his identity. Because if we understand his identity better, it makes the promises easier to accept. It makes it easier to have hope and joy and freedom. So here's God's identity. God ultimately is the father of creation. Now I tried this last night. It went partially okay. So we're going to see how it goes today. How many of you have ever created something? Food, Legos, a deck. <laughs> All right. Has, no one's created anything? Come on, who's created something? Okay. I don't care if you've made a deck or not. It doesn't matter. All right. How many of you have children? So you've created something. And this is the thing. God, who is the master creator and delights in our creation, like, haven't you delighted in your creation? Again, children, most of the time, probably, sometimes you're like, oh, dang. But, like, we delight in our creation. Whenever I cook food, I'm like, man, look at that food I just made. It's awesome. And if I delight in something as basic as food, right, how much more does God delight in us, in our intricacies, in our uniqueness, in our, in just who we are? Like, God's like, wow, that's my daughter. I love her so much. Wow, that's my son. I love him so much. Yeah, he screws up sometimes, but I love him. So if we take delight in our creations, how much more does God take delight in us? That's part of his identity, right? And when I recognize that I am created by the creator, I am made in his image and likeness, that like I'm designed after him, my soul can rest with the one who created me. I can rest now with the one who's made me. And here's the other, like, just a really important fact, right? This is the truth. God doesn't change. And he stays the same. He's consistent. Like, it's not like, oh, he's going to be, he's going to be like this attitude one day and then this attitude another day. No, like, God is persistent. So that's his identity. Now, if we know his promises, we kind of get a better grasp of his identity. We're, we're looking at the hope, the joy, and the freedom then what effect does this have on us? If we, again, accept the authority, we accept the truth, we abide by the law, we acknowledge the sin and the relativism and the rejection, but we say, no, I want to live in, his, I want to live in this relationship, I want to have hope, I want to have joy, I want to have freedom, then what effect does it have on humanity? So, the first is that if I'm in this relationship with him, I begin to love from a place of joy. 
I'm not just loving from my own ability, which is, again, flawed, weak at times, not perfect. But if I love from a place with the Lord, I love with a place of joy. And then, in that loving and abiding by what he's told me to do, right, the obedience that I've promised and that I am called to live for him and with him, then I, um, freedom is then given to me. Because the church is not a place of restriction, right? There are laws and there are, there's order for reasons. It helps our soul. It protects us. But the commandments are not restrictive. They're, they're actually uh, eye-opening. They're, they're broadening. It's like, okay, love your father and mother. Like, that makes a lot of sense. I should probably do that, which means I should love people. I should give authority. I should give respect to people. Like, don't kill people. That makes sense, too. I should probably preserve the dignity of human life. Okay. So I live from a place of freedom. But here's the, there's the really big effect on us. This is the effect that's the challenge, is that I'm challenged to do better and to be better. If there is something that is right, it means there is something that is wrong. And if I'm doing the wrong, I should fix myself and do something better. I'm challenged. But this is the thing. We don't want to live, I hope not, a life of mediocrity. I do the bare minimum. I'd get this done. I've gone to Mass for the week, and I've, that's it. Like, no, we want, to, we want to be challenged to say, Lord, like, how do I live my life for you daily, hourly, minute by minute? And so, yeah, it's going to push me. It's going to challenge me. It's going to stretch me. But that's good. We do that in other ways. We do that when we exercise. We do that in education. Why would we not do that with our faith? Because when we challenge ourselves to be better, it leads to something known as discipleship. Right? To follow after a master, a creator, one who is like higher than me. And so we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Right? For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example in obedience and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But discipleship not only involves the process of becoming, but of making other disciples, of evangelizing, of witnessing it's fascinating when I go through town now, and my clerks are like, oh, hey, Father Jay. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I'm starting to get people that are like looking at me and calling me like my name, which is awesome. I have no idea who they are, but they know who I am. Because I'm discipling for Jesus daily. We had the, the parade yesterday. It was pretty great. Um, no kids got hurt, so success. <laughs> All right, so effects of humanity. Now, let's look at another, let's look at one layer deeper, right? Sacraments and the effects of sacraments. And I could go into all of them. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to highlight one, baptism, because the sacrament leads to all other sacraments. So the effects of baptism, right? Ultimately, it's an adoption into the family. So back to those covenants, right? It starts out small. It gets big. It's like once everyone. So baptism brings us in. The baptized have put on Christ, as we hear in Galatians. And then through the Holy Spirit, baptism is a bath that purifies, justifies, and sanctifies. And that's in 1 Corinthians. Here's, here's the really beautiful part. It is only within the faith of the church that each of the faithful can believe. So it's, it's actually by our being in the church and a part of the church that we're better and able to believe. This is, this is uh, you're going to love this. The faith required for baptism is not a perfect and mature faith, but a beginning 
that is called to develop. So does that mean we can baptize children? Yeah. Does that mean I'm going to baptize a baby after Mass? Yeah. I see him back there. I'm pumped. But, but that's why parents, godparents, like, we take on the responsibility of saying, like, yes, I'm asking for faith for my child. Doesn't mean, like, their faith has to be perfect. No, like, it's going to come through time. But we give the grace, the effectiveness of the sacrament to, to begin to mature us and to help us grow. Like, how phenomenal is that? And because we've been baptized, it doesn't have to happen again. It's one and done. We don't get rebaptized because, like, oh, now I feel like it. No, it already occurred. We don't, we don't do over. Like, it's, it's already present. So the two principal effects of baptism are purification from our sins and then a new birth in the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the effect if, again, we're acknowledging, like, God's authority, power, love for us. And again, the other is, like, confirmation seals us, Eucharist nourishes us, the priesthood gives us the apostolic tradition and the access to the sacraments, confession heals us along with anointing of the sick, and marriage gives us the, the church family. Here's something for us to ponder. This, this was, happened in a conversation Friday night with someone. Thinking about all of this stuff, like if God loves me so much and wants me to be a part of this family, you know, he's given me ways to access him. But if God didn't want me to encounter him, then why did he bother coming down? If God doesn't want us to encounter him, why did he bother becoming incarnate? And there's something to that, to say like, if God sends his son to take on human flesh, Jesus Christ, who is God, the word of God, then there has to be something as far as relationship that he wanted and he continually wants. Like, God loves us. He loves you, right? At, at the Easter vigil, there's a really beautiful um, uh, song, hymn, done at the beginning, uh, known as the Exaltet. And the Exaltet's actually this really, uh, really, uh, classical examination of salvation history. So, like, it references things like the Olympiads and, like, um, all sorts of other things, like the, the 1,992nd year of the Olympiad. Like, I'm not going to chant it, but it's something like that. And, and why is this important? Because it's a, it's a panoramic view of salvation history that goes all the way back to, like, the beginning of creation. And so God has had this plan in place for us from before any of us ever existed. Jesus does not abandon those who hope in him. And therefore, our prayer has to become something like, like, Lord, help me have hope. Lord, sustain my hope. Because when it comes to the very end of this, like what right looks like, what right looks like is, is that it, it has to change me. It has to stretch me. It has to push me. Because... In the end, brothers and sisters, it matters. It really matters. For us today, the, the next challenge, the next step is, okay, after we've gone through this authority, truth and law, acknowledging sin and moral uh, relativism and, and rejection, but now this final step of hope, joy, and freedom. To live from a place of hope, joy, and freedom, the, the last thing I really have to ponder is, do I want to change? Do I want to follow after a God who's made me, who loves me, who adores in me, 
who sacrifices life for me? Am I willing to make the changes to follow him more intimately? So that's our prayer. Lord, what, what in me needs to change? And, and if I can identify that, Lord, help me to change. Help me to be the disciple you've made and called me to be because you've created me. Ah, oh, it's so good. So, yeah, that, that prayer is just uh, to identify, like, what in me needs to change because God loves me.